Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bendra. And thanks to those at home for coming back and listening once again. We are, again, lucky enough to be speaking with one of our recent guests, Denise DeBell, a friend and colleague in NELA. She is the founder of the Law Office of Denise M. DeBell. I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to our first episode with Denise or to check out her newly refurbished website um, to learn more about Denise and, and her areas of practice and her accomplishments and, and, uh, and areas of knowledge. Denise, welcome back. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So last time we we did a real deep dive on the ministerial exception to various employment laws. Today we're going to do something a little bit less esoteric. We wanted to talk about you, your career, what got you into employment law, and, 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 and where you are today. So let's dive right in. You, prior to law school, worked as a neighborhood planner, and after graduating law school, you worked in politics. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences? Sure. So, well, the neighborhood planning, my undergrad degree was urban planning. I was always interested in the in the sort of the housing uh, subset of urban planning. So I worked for a variety of housing, affordable housing, fair housing, neighborhood revitalization type organizations, usually nonprofits. And then, you know, while I was working at one of them, I felt the need to expand my expertise and my credentials. And so I knew that I liked being a mouthpiece an advocate. So law school uh, made sense. So that's that's what led me to law school. I was still interested in, in the whole housing arena and neighborhood arena, but as a lawyer, it kind of made more sense to get involved in worker rights. So that's kind of what led me to that. As far as my political activity, that's sort of been kind of a, a thread that runs through it all because of my interest in policy my interest in civic civic matters and and civic participation in politics. So really, my political activity has been mostly of a volunteer nature. I was only briefly a campaign manager, very briefly for an alderman, an aldermanic race about seven years ago. No more than that, actually. Now, anyway, but I found myself to a group that does field work for candidates, again, on a volunteer basis. And they sort of had, the name of the group is the Abbey Group, where we're still friends, but we don't really, we don't really carry out the same activities that we used to. But their passion was to assist candidates who were challenging the regular democratic machine and to assist them by giving them expert field, field volunteers, which is what we did. So I worked on maybe six or seven campaigns with them over the years at the local level, congressional level, and state level. So it's just something I enjoyed doing. So, so I guess then to segue or, 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 or follow up on that, you've worked on a couple of different political campaigns. How did that impact where you've gone in your legal career? How has that influenced you professionally? You know, I, I don't really... You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I think it more was that my legal knowledge helped with the sometimes with the political work rather than the other way around. You know, I it's not as if I have gotten much in the way of clients through my political work because you know the, it's it's a very it was a very grassroots 
activity. It's, you know, knocking on doors and talking to the neighbors, talking to people in a variety of areas of Chicago and saying, hey, I believe in this candidate. You should, too. Please vote for them. You know, it's just it's very grassroots. It's very it's not it's not anything that requires a legal degree. It just requires uh, being able to connect with people and being willing to willing to, you know, have cold toes and cold fingers because you're usually doing this in the depths of Chicago winters. Right. So 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 that's that's really what it is. It's just as I say, it's more that there is a kind of a thread running through my entire career, starting with the urban planning degree of an interest in, you know, citizens being involved. And of course, that's why I still want to be an advocate for worker rights in the state legislature, you know. One thing I find interesting about your practice area is you do employment law, but then you also have uh, condo law as like a subset of what you do. Yeah. So did that come about because of the housing work you were doing kind of early in your career? Yeah, it kind of did because when I was a neighborhood planner, you know, I was involved at the neighborhood level with neighbors who had particular issues in the community in which they lived. And, I, you know, again, I would go door to door with them as well. And so when I decided to go into my own practice after law school, I just sort of naturally gravitated to the kinds of disputes that condo owners have with each other because it's another... It's another nonprofit, you know, condo associations are really like little governments, you know, they're really like little mini municipalities. And so some of the same kind of skills and, and, and facts arise when you're working in that arena as, as if you were working in a community organizing arena. Yeah. Someone who's looked into buying condos over the years, it seems like a huge headache. <laughs> you got to make sure. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, it's a government, so you got to make sure you have the seat at the table. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it raises a lot of issues, and <laughs> and I could talk at length about you know it's 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 not employment law, so I I won't talk at length about it. But the issue you can around- you can we've had non-employment lawyers deviate oh, a little yeah. bit from the employment law stuff. Okay. We had an intellectual property person. We spent a weird five minute deep dive on pogs and. And, and like Cabbage Patch Kids or something. So I don't think condo associations <laughs> yeah. is too far out of the bounds. Yeah, what are some of the biggest issues you see in the, the condo world? Well, it's since I represent both sides, the condo associations, which is in essence working with the board, and also the condo unit owner, I see it from both sides. Sometimes the condo board, which is very diligent in their duties and trying to do the right thing, their work will be very, very difficult because if they encounter even one condo owner who is oppositional, it can make life hell for everybody. Okay. But on the other hand, if you're representing a condo unit owner, they are really up against it when they confront a board that is not is not observing the law, sometimes not observing their own governing documents, sometimes is motivated by clearly, you know, that's where I get into discrimination because the condo boards can discriminate against certain unit owners on the basis of their race, on the basis of their national origin, their disability. And so you you do just, you encounter that. And the particular problem that unit owners have is that the Illinois Condominium Property Act so favors the condo board. So a unit owner really is up against it in terms of suing their, their association. 
I mean, one, one of the ways, for instance, that probably those of us who do employment law would be interested in, the unit owner, besides having to pay their own lawyer in order to pursue a lawsuit, if they lose, they will also have to pay the condo association's attorney. So the condo association's attorney's fees will be added to their assessment. And does, that go both, does that go both ways? If no, the, it does not go both wow. ways. Is that statutory? It does not. Or is that usually just like common that's, practice within That's HOA? statutory. That's the Illinois Condominium Property Act. Yeah. Wow. It's something that those of us who um, represent unit owners would like to see changed. But I needn't probably point out that the condo association bar, meaning the big firms that represent only the association, right? They, of course, don't want it changed. And I mean, if I wanted to get into that legislative advocacy, that'd be a whole nother But that's that's really tough because the constituency for changing it is is, you know, it's not at all a clear constituency. You know what I mean? And but yet, as I say, the unit owners are there sort of has a chilling effect on people who think that they have a claim against their association because they could end up paying thousands and thousands of dollars. Oh, for sure. And like you just said, yeah, the associations are represented by big firms with expensive fees. So that's going right. to be a pretty pricey bill. Um, that's right. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So yeah. how did you, the housing part that makes sense, like the condo part of your practice, how did you get into workers' rights? I've always, just from my own political orientation and my upbringing even, I've always been sympathetic to employees. It just made sense for me to want to be an advocate on that side. And, and employment law is, you know, looking at various areas of law that I could have decided to to pursue. Employment law is just so intellectually interesting. You know, it's changing all the time. There's a lot that's involved and and there's a certain drama to it, right? Because you sit and you talk to an employee that's been mistreated. It's the victim of 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 you know of their rights being being violated. And there's just no factual pattern is ever the same, right? It's always interesting and it's always dramatic. So that all appeals to me about it. So I, I guess to back up even further than looking at your career and not just the employment law work you do, what led you to open your own firm and set up shop as a solo? That was when I graduated law school, I had very recently given birth to my first child and I knew that um working for a firm or perhaps even if I uh, got a government uh, agency uh, position that I would be expected to work very long hours. And I just wasn't prepared to want to devote 60 to 70 hour weeks when I had a new baby. So I decided that I at least would have more flexibility in my hours if I had my own practice. So that's really the main, the main reason I, I opened up my own solo practice. And I think you opened up your solo practice, is it 1991? Am I getting the year correct? Yeah, basically, right. Mm-hmm. So, 91, so in, 92. Mm-hmm. In those three decades of having your own practice, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned? Well, I have enjoyed having my own practice very much. It suits me. I do have to say that I did not probably, when I started out, realize how difficult though it is to have your own practice when you have not previously worked in, you know, for a law firm or some other place where you can get some training. So I was fortunate in the early years of my practice 
to find a lot of lawyers who were willing to, to give me advice, to give me some guidance that, that was indispensable, that helped a lot. But if I had actually worked for a firm for four or five years or something, I would have had a lot more opportunity to be trained. And I also hopefully would have, I would think, would have had a, you know, a number of clients who, who I could have brought with me to the practice. So, so when you start fresh, you know, it's, it is difficult. So that, that is one sort of, that was one difficult, it eventually all worked out, but it was a difficulty of my early career, I would say. As far as other things I've learned, you know, the employment law and even the condo law, the two areas of law that I've most uh, practiced in, both are, as I said already, very rewarding for a lot of reasons. I do think that those of us who go into those areas of law have to expect that in most cases, we are not going to have a stable source of income. You know, working on the plaintiff side, you're not going to have that. So if anyone, again, if anyone asked me, you know, what have you learned who was just starting out, I would, I would tell them to expect that, you know. Yeah, that's going to be my next question, but maybe I already answered it. Um, <laughs> if you, you know, you have the benefit of hindsight now, what are, what would you tell yourself back in 1991 from things you've learned? I think, yeah, going back to kind of what I already said. I think I probably would have still bit the bullet bullet and decided to work for someone else first rather than going into my own practice. I think it, it just was was very difficult starting out, especially in certain areas of law. I actually also did social security disability in my early years of my practice. That was an easier area of law to do without being trained because it's kind of a roadmap that that you can follow from the regulations on social security disability benefits. But employment law, condo law, other times when you're really litigating, it, it really helps to have worked for someone that can even just, you know, show you the practical realities of litigation, you know, the practical steps you, you have to be ready for, which I did not have. So, yeah. So, so besides just coming into it with some training, maybe having mentors, what other advice would you give someone who's thinking about opening up their own shop? I guess I would say that this is for someone who wants to be a self-starter who is a self-starter who expects, you know, is willing to accept a certain amount of, of uncertainty, as I said already, income that isn't going to be stable, especially in the beginning. And, you know, what other way to put it? Just to, to be willing to accept that you're going to have to market and sell yourself. You know, no one else is going to do that for you. So someone who doesn't want to do that, I think probably isn't going to like being a solo lawyer. Well, and to some degree, I think you have to do that even at a bigger shop. It's just so important to have your own brand, your name, and be out there in the marketplace. Yeah, I suppose. Again, I haven't worked for, except for a, <laughs> a, a short period where I was of counsel at a firm, I haven't worked at another firm. But, you know, if you're working for another firm, though, the firm is, is partly going to carry you, you know, right? I mean, at least initially. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so on the last episode, we talked, to, we talked a little bit about your employment law practice and the ministerial exception. What other areas of employment law do you practice? I do pretty much delve into all of the, you know, the statutory claims that an employee could have discrimination, Americans with Disabilities Act, Family and Medical Leave Act. I have done wage and hour overtime cases, whistleblower retaliation. So, um, you know, I'm interested in all of those. I have experience in all of those to varying degrees. I also advise people. I, I spend 
a, a good amount of time advising people who are either about to take a job or in a job situation and they're having difficulties. I, I try to help people, excuse me, help people navigate through some of that. So even when, you know, they really don't want to sue, but they want to protect themselves in some other way, I'm happy to help people with that as well. And you're still pretty involved, not just pretty, very involved in the Legislative Committee for NILA too. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing for the IDES subcommittee. Okay. So as Max said in his introductory comments, the IDES stands, of course, for Illinois Department of Employment Security. And at the height of the pandemic, there was, as everyone probably knows, a a deluge of claims for unemployment benefits. At the same time, the regulations of IDES with respect to people having to look for work and find work, all of that was made more difficult by how the economy had taken such a hit. So I decided that given all those circumstances, it made sense to form a subcommittee specifically to to kind of see what we could do to help claimants through all of that and to address problems with IDES. And so we did that. We've, of course, kind of come out of most of that. You know, there's still overpayment issues. But what we're really focusing on now is in our subcommittee is trying to uh, address, at the moment, we're looking at administrative judges, the quality of the administrative judges who do the unemployment hearings is is varied, as you might expect, but some of them we have had very negative experiences with. And it's particularly important, of course, for claimants who are not represented, but it's even important for claimants who are represented by a lawyer. So in other words, administrative judges who improperly harass or or otherwise, you know, are, are intimidating to a claimant, AJs who don't develop the record as they're supposed to, again, particularly if the employee is not represented, AJs who certain show certain biases to the employer. We're trying to address somehow, we don't uh, you know, we don't have a, a, a definite plan for this right now, but we're working on how we can raise those issues with the Illinois Department of Employment Security. And then in addition, when the time is right, we want to address some of the problems with the misconduct definition in the current unemployment, uh, excuse me, unemployment insurance statute. The misconduct definition is is broader than we believe it should be based on some changes that were made a couple of years ago. So we want to try to work with, with the people who are responsible for changing that. What are some of the, the problems with the current definition of misconduct? Right now, due to some changes that were made not long after Governor Rauner took office, there is a list of per se rules, any one of which, if, if a claimant is, is, is guilty of any one of which, could would constitute misconduct. So in general, the misconduct definition, which has existed for a long time, is that the employee, if the employee has violated a reasonable rule of the employer and that that rule was repeated to the employee or that rule harmed the employer, that would that would constitute misconduct. That was the definition. These new per se rules actually add on to that in a way that is that can be very problematic for the employee. So for instance, one of them is that if the employee refuses to follow a reasonable instruction of the employer, that's very, we think, very squishy because an instruction of, of that the employer gives to the employee could mean just about anything. 
And if there is no examination by the administrative judge of whether the rule was reasonable, whether the employee was given proper notice of the rule, all of those kinds of questions that go to intent, if there isn't an examination of those, then then really you're kind of upending the whole misconduct definition because it's supposed to be about intent. It's not, you know, misconduct is not the employee just didn't quite fit what the employer wanted, right? Misconduct is the employee actually does something intentional, which violates the employer's prerogative, so to speak. So if if you if you have these per se rules, some of them, not all of them, but some of these per se rules don't respect that intent, that need for, you know, an intent being shown. So we'd like to see that rescinded from the statute, basically. Tanisha, you do a, a fair amount of unemployment insurance benefits work, right? Yeah, fair amount. It's something, I think it was our second episode, maybe our first guest was Karen Doran, does a fair amount of that work as well and talked about oh, yeah. some of her experiences. She's the co-chair. Uh-huh. She's the co-chair. She is. Mm-hmm. So, so the subcommittee's in good hands with you too, as two folks who do it. Are there, you mentioned overpayment. Are there any other kind of recurrent issues you've seen in your practice doing that sort of work that are still persisting or that are different than at the start of the pandemic? Because I think at least from my perspective, we don't really do that work, but we're, we've been getting different calls now than we were getting in 2020, but we're not really diving into it as much. Is there something you're seeing a lot of right now? I don't Put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I don't know that it's that different than what I've always seen with unemployment hearings, except again for that overpayment issue, which is a real headache because people don't, you know, people think that they can challenge the underlying basis for the decision that was made against them. And in most cases, that time has passed. They can only, you know, try to get a waiver of the overpoint of, excuse me, of the overpayment determination. But anyway, but as far as other issues that come up, you know, it's really just, it's really just sort of the whole universe of situations where an employee gets terminated or the other reason for them being challenged is if they left the job voluntarily, right? So those are the two issues we see. And the reason it's tough at all is because the employer often will simply lie about what happened. So if it's a voluntary leave kind of case, the employer will say, oh no, that that you know, that person quit. We didn't terminate them when really what happened is they terminated the employee, you know, even if the termination wasn't super clear cut, it was it was a termination. And then in the cases of misconduct, where the misconduct is the is the issue, the employee will say, you know, I, I didn't know about that rule or I just didn't do what the employer told me I did. But the employer will basically come up with or basically fabricate something in order to claim that the employee was terminated for misconduct. So so it's a very fact based kind of thing, you know. Well, Denise, thank you for your hard work on that topic. I know not a lot of not every employment lawyer, our firm is does not do much of it. So it's good that there are people out there who are fighting on that issue and helping people because sometimes I don't know. I feel like a lot of the time when people call me, it's yeah, there's not much I can really do for you in terms of your job loss or this, that, or the other, but you are entitled to unemployment benefits. If they're screwing you on that, there might be something there. So that's, that's important work for a lot of people. Exactly. I mean, right. Someone may not, you know, once in a while, I will say it doesn't happen a lot, but once in a while it does happen though, where someone will come with an unemployment claim 
And I'll say, hey, what did this employer do? And it turns out the employer, you know, fired them because they took family medical leave or or maybe, you know, they didn't get paid what they should have been paid, you know, as far as overtime, you know. So once in a while, you will uncover another claim while you're doing the unemployment, you know. But but you're right that, you know, the employers perhaps or the general public doesn't understand that when we adjudicate an unemployment claim, we're not adjudicating whether the employer had the right to, to terminate that person. We're just adjudicating whether they're entitled to benefits, you know, so. Denise, anything you want to plug coming up this summer, late spring? I, I really I really can't think of anything timely, you know, that's that's about to, to occur in the next month or two. Remind people to check out your website. They can do that. Yeah, my website is www.debelledbell-law.com. And on the website, I will say that I think one of the uh, the interesting things for people is that I, I do have a video where I am interviewing actually a person who is an ex-client, someone who I, I did represent both in the condo arena and in the employment arena. And in the... In the video, I explain sort of basic things that people should know. So for instance, in the employment video, I talk about how employment at will is probably affecting that person's employment situation and what employment at will means and how to look behind employment at will, what statutes would change the the employment at will contract and so forth. So it's sort of general information that people might find informative. Um, you want to do your favorite part? Yeah, let's do it again. So- <laughs> we now you know it's coming <laughs> exactly we did this last time too so we like to end our episodes with a shout out of the week it can be pretty much everything it's pretty broad it's kind of like the definition of minister it's as broad as you want it to be <laughs> so, uh, who last time you shouted out your son who is your shout out of the week this time well my shout out now is gonna have to be my daughter <laughs> probably smart for, probably yeah. smart for family family uh piece well it, it actually makes sense this it makes sense she's wonderful too she actually followed in her mother's footsteps because she got an urban planning so and she is doing some of the same kind of work that i did in my early urban planning career because she goes to community meetings and explains to the you know the various people that show up at these meetings about certain planning principles and helps to guide them in their in their decisions they want to make about what they want in their neighborhood or their municipality. And she also is an advocate for, you know, sensible and progressive policies in those communities, which is not an easy thing to do very often, you know. So she she advocates for, you know, a wide range of housing, you know, to increase the affordability uh, of housing in, in these communities. And it's not an, it's not something that a lot of people want to hear very often. So, so I do think she's brave to do that kind of work. <laughs> That's wonderful, Denise. Um, thank you so much for making time for us on a Sunday afternoon and giving us some of your precious free time because we know how busy you are for all your hard work representing workers on the legislative and IDES committees and subcommittees for sharing your knowledge and your experiences and just for everything you do. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you to both of you you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Everybody at home, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.